Hey, well, uh, welcome. Welcome to week four. You guys have persevered. Um, for those of y'all, <laughs> is anybody new tonight? I know Tim is, but is anybody else new tonight? Um, it's okay if you are. Okay, sweet. Well, we've had new people every week, so you're the new person this week. Um, well, if you are new, and Tim's the only one that is new, but I'll introduce myself anyway. Uh, I'm Nathan Wagnon, and I, I serve here at Watermark on the equipping team. And uh, I also, uh, one of my responsibilities to, is to help lead these classes, the core classes. So uh, just by way of where we are right now, we, this is week four of six weeks. So we're, this is uh, officially the halfway point. Um, all of the notes and handouts and slides are back there, so if you've missed a week, then you can pick those up. And um, We also were talking with the AV people about getting the audio and the slides from each week uploaded onto the website. That hasn't happened yet, but hopefully this week it will. So if you did miss something and you want to go back and listen to it uh, a week that you missed, then feel free to do that. You know, I used to know until we launched a brand new website, and now I'm assuming that uh, it's, do you know, Lauren? Hang on, stand by, because this might get recorded. Can you unmute the red mic? This is Lauren Owens, ladies and gentlemen. Hi. Um, staff, oh. on staff. Where is it, Lauren? Tell us. Okay, um, so if you go to our website, watermark.org, um, there's a button that says resources, and the first, um, first tab underneath that is messages. You can go there and choose equipping as your topic, and then you'll be able to see all of our equipping resources there. Yep, and I think you can search by either speaker name or class or whatever. That's correct. So, all right, sweet. There you go. That's the deal. Also, I know a couple of you, since because I've talked to you about it, um, have been going through Yancey's book. Um, and if you have, uh, I, I think that's great. Um, if you haven't and you want to start to, I think we still have books back there for sale. I think they're like 10 bucks a piece, which I think is cheaper than you can get it online. So I encourage you to do that um, if you haven't. It's an easy book to read. Um, so have that resource available for you as well. All right. Um, so just like we did last week, uh, definitely know this is, you know, we're getting to the end of the week. This is kind of the, I, I typically uh, have Fridays off, and so this is kind of the last thing that I do on the week. Obviously on the weekends, sometimes I'll work, but um, I know we're getting toward the end of the week, and uh, some crazy stuff had happened. Last week we prayed for Lucy to turn. I don't know if she has or not, but we'll continue to pray for her. Um, and, uh, but also just wanted to be sensitive for everybody in the room. Um, if anybody had any pressing prayer requests or anything you'd like to share, um, bef- before we start the class, I'm going to pray for us. So I'll let you guys share a request or concern or whatever you'd like if, if you want to. Once, twice, Devin, Devin, right? Love it. Okay. All right. Sweet. We'll definitely pray for that. Um, you know, also, I don't know how, how well you guys keep up with kind of current events or the news or anything like that. Um, 
And I don't know where you stand on this issue. Um, I'm about to tell you where I stand on it. <laughs> but, uh, but I do think it's interesting, I mean, uh, that, that uh, there've, there's been these videos that have been coming out about uh, 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 people who have infiltrated into Planned Parenthood and uh, to secretly record these conversations about um, Planned Parenthood trafficking human organs um, from aborted babies. And uh, so, you know, I, I think this is, this is one of the uh, real, real, in fact, it may be the greatest, in my opinion anyway, and I think biblically, um, is one of the greatest tragedies of our time. Um, we have far surpassed um, any other uh, genocide that's ever taken place in the history of mankind um, and continue to do so. And there, it really is a spiritual battle. I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of language that takes place. There's a lot of um, uh, kind of um, coaxing lobbyists, you know, politicians that it's such a hot button issue. They're like, don't want to get involved, but you don't want to alienate your voters. And so it's like, uh, you know, you kind of just try to stay politically correct. And yet in the midst of all of this, like we continue, we continue to um, murder our children. I mean, uh, that's, that's what it is, so I'm going to call it what it is. And, uh, I mean, my wife is pregnant, nine months pregnant with our, uh, like, literally could give birth at any point. And I've just been reminded, because it's been in my face, um, uh, about the, just, this horrific thing where we have the, the most helpless among us are um, just murdered. So I'm going to pray for that as well, um, that the Holy Spirit would weigh heavy on uh, the powers that be um, that can actually affect change, that change would take place. Um, so we'll pray for Devin's aunt and for, is, is, do you know updates on Lucy? Okay, cool. So maybe next week you can give us an update, yeah. We'll keep praying for Lucy. Well, Jesus, we, um, we acknowledge that uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and um, that your claim about yourself to be God um, is true. And so, um, as the sovereign, the creator of the universe, we worship you. And we know that you are strong enough to do whatever is in your will to do, and yet, at the same time, we know that you are patient with all of us, um, not wishing any to perish. And so we know that um, although um, nothing that happens happens outside of your uh, permissive will, um, we also know that um, in the midst of that, there's a lot of um, the, the room that you give us. Um, we take that room and we, um, we execute a lot of evil in it. Um, so... I pray in the midst of that, also just acknowledge the enemy, and the enemy is working, the enemy is working to um, usurp and um, do away with um, your reign. And so we pray against the enemy, we pray against um, the people who are working as agents of the enemy, whether they know it or not. Um, we pray against um, clinics that murder our children. We pray um, against the enemy's influence that would convince um, a young, scared mother um, to end her child's life. 
we thank you for all of the ways that you're redeeming um, women who uh, have come out of that, that 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 is a part of their story. We thank you. I, I thank you for people like Luli Thomas, um, who who experienced um, that that is a part of her story and how she's leading women um, into the forgiveness and the grace of God. Um, I thank you that um, that your blood covers um, all of that, and yet um, I, I also pray um, for just movement in our society to, um, to make that act an illegal act. And um, just pray um, in Jesus' name that, that life would be preserved. Um, also pray for Devin and his family and, and his aunt that recently passed away. And, and uh, just pray that you comfort his family during this time, that they would experience your presence in a real them. Still in that breached position, pray that, that she would turn um, and that any complications that might result from that would be thwarted and that um, she would just be carried to term and uh, have a nice, um, natural, uneventful birth. Jesus, we pray for tonight. We pray that you would um, also, as you claimed, that you're the teacher and Lord. And so we pray that you would come and teach and that we might um, not walk away from here um, unchanged, that we would encounter you through the power of the Holy Spirit, and um, that you would change our hearts, that you would change our affections, that um, you would stir our affections for you during this time, that this time would be an act of worship. We love you. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, you heard me pray in that prayer. I, I, I don't want to... I want to... I definitely, you know, when you bring up a, a, a subject like abortion, I mean, especially in a kind of, even though it's a small setting, it's a public one, and, and uh, also don't presume to, to think that, um, you know, there may not be people in this room that that is a part of your story. And so, as I prayed, and I, I just want to reiterate before I, we move on, um, that, hey, there is, um, there is grace there, there is forgiveness there, um, there is restoration, uh, redemption even. Um, one of my, I mentioned her in the, in the prayer, you know, with, uh, with Luli uh, Thomas. <clears throat> um, is actually a friend of mine. I worked um, for her husband for a while, and, and just to hear her story and how she's now leading women is just a really, really cool um, story. So if that is part of your story, and you'd like to know more about that, um, there's a ministry here at Watermark called Someone Cares. I would just uh, encourage, encourage you to check that out. Okay, so we are, uh, just to do a little bit of a brief overview before we start getting into this, um, we're at week four. So far what we've covered is, we've covered the background and kind of context of Jesus' life, and then that was week one. And I'll, I'm going to reference some of that tonight because we're going to get into the message of Jesus. What is he saying? Who is he talking to? Why is he saying the things that he's saying? And obviously, we're going to draw from uh, some of the background to, um, to put that into context. Uh, and then the second week, we covered the claims of Jesus. What did, what did Jesus claim about himself? What did he believe about himself? And it was uh, hopefully fairly clear to you that um, by the time we left um, a couple weeks ago, it was clear that, that, um, that Jesus' claim was that he was God, literally God in the flesh. Um, and then last week, we covered the works of Jesus, which is what did Jesus do? Um, 
how did he go about uh, uh, living his life? What, how was he interacting with people? And we just sh- showed through the works of Jesus that his works showed as, a, as validating signs that, he actually, that, that the claims that he was making about himself were actually true. I mean, he was claiming to be the bread of life, and then he fed like 15,000 people, right? So 5,000 men, but then including women and children, it was a lot more than that. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life, and then what did he do? He raised a man from the dead, right? So he's not just claiming these things, he's also doing things that are validating his claims. So that the early church um, comes up with, not no, they didn't come up with anything, they, they, they just uh, uh, pushed out a message that was the, the least likely message that you would expect to come from a people group in the first century in Palestine whose claim was there's only one God, right? Uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, uh, the, uh, the Lord is one. So there's this staunchly monotheistic um, religion that had no concept of Trinitarianism in it at all. Trinitarianism did not exist in any form, shape, or fashion in the ancient world. And yet now, out of this people who are least likely to make that type of mistake, comes this belief that no, God is the Father and the Son, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, so for the person who's, who wants to deny that, that the, the claims of Jesus were valid and that, that his works actually took place in history, you have to explain that. How did that happen? How did it happen that among the one people group that are least likely to do this arises this type of belief system, where now people are not just worshiping Yahweh as the Father, they're also worshiping Jesus as the Son. And then, out of this relationship between the Father and the Son, they're also worshiping the Spirit. So, you have this, um, uh, and, and I, mean, I was talking to some, some people this week, you have this Trinitarian formula in, in a couple of places in the New Testament, but most specifically for our purposes in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Jesus says, and we're going to talk about this at length in two weeks, but Jesus says, uh, go and make disciples of all the nations. Um, so not just Israel, this all-inclusive, the whole world. Um, of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of who? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right? There's no textual variant there in any, of our, in any of our New Testament manuscripts. There's no suggestion that this was a later interpolation by a scribe who put that in there. There's, I mean, if, as far as we can tell, that is original to Matthew's Gospel, which was written probably in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s. And, and so, which begs the question, where in the world did that come from, that these people are worshiping the Father and the Son and the Spirit? Well, the most natural answer, and I think the most obvious one, is it came from Jesus himself, that Jesus actually said this, and that people actually are encountering a, a risen Christ, and they don't know what to do with that, other than to say, you are who you say you are. Um, so that Jesus' question to Peter who do you say that I am? And it really, to all of his disciples, Peter's just the one that spoke up. But he said, who, um, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And their answer to him is, um, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I think even when they're saying that, I don't think that they have a concept in their mind that's as full 
of meaning as the one that they would have later post-resurrection where they're standing in front of him and, um, and worshiping him as God. And he's letting them worship him. He's not saying, no, 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 I'm not God, don't worship me, like the angels do, right? He's, he's accepting their worship. And so, um, against however improbable it may sound, and against all like uh, kind of Western naturalistic worldview that would cause us to hesitate at saying this, we have to affirm that Jesus is God. That's, <laughs> I mean, uh, that, that's, that's the corner that we've been backed into. Um, for, for, in my opinion, for any rational thinking um, person who's coming to just the evidence, what does the evidence say? Well, the evidence says that there really was a man who lived 2,000 years ago who claimed outstanding things about himself and did even more outstanding things about his claims, and he was executed for those claims because he, he, they were so radical, they were a threat to the religious establishment, and he was gaining a following because he was doing things that were validating his claims. And then after that man was executed on a Roman cross, three days later, he got up from the dead. Um, And I think that the people who wrote the Gospels that we read today, I think one of the reasons that um, we look at them, I mean, right now we we look at them and it's like, oh, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oh, yeah, that's the Bible. And we look at it as as this whole, like, fixture of 66 books, um, you know, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and we're like, oh, yeah, that's the Bible. Well, it wasn't the Bible to them. To them, it was an eyewitness testimony that they wrote down because they saw it with their eyes. So that's what John's trying to communicate in 1 John chapter 1, where he says, um, I write these things to you um, concerning the word of life, the things that we saw with our eyes, that we touched with our hands, Right? He, he is an eyewitness to these things, and he's writing them down, and, and we're thankful that he did. I mean, he'd been crazy not to. It's like, I just saw a dude get up from the dead, right? He was dead, and now he's not dead anymore. I probably ought to write that down, you know? And so they do, and there's this rich tradition in primitive Christianity of, of uh, this rich Jesus tradition that, is, uh, uh, that becomes the Gospels. Um, in fact, if you want to know more about that, we're hosting a training day here Actually, in this room, it just won't have the barrier. It's the whole room. Um, September the 19th will be um, five speakers um, dealing with uh, specifically what are the primitive earliest sources for Jesus and are those sources reliable um, for us as we consider the Gospels as a historical account of what actually happened, right? And so um, would encourage you to check that out. There will start to be, um, I think in two weeks, there will be announcements in the Watermark News about that. And then you'll see it, um, but would encourage you to come um, to that as well. So, however improbable it may sound, um, we, you know, we, uh, what we can't say is that Jesus was just a great moral teacher who, um, who, who died and was not resurrected um, because uh, we, we, one, the, the gospel accounts don't allow us to do that. Um, that, that would be picking and choosing, and based on what are you picking and choosing? And, and secondly, um, if, if this was, then, then how in the world do you explain the rise of Christianity out of uh, Judaism? So I, I say all this to set up tonight what we're saying is, is I wanted to give a summary of the first three weeks, which really last week was kind of the culminating, like, who do you say that I am? And the answer to that is, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God, and um, you were declared the Son of God with power 
by the Holy Spirit um, because you were raised from the dead. You were dead, and you're no longer dead. Um, he's alive. I mean, this is why we celebrate Easter, right? Um, he's risen. Um, and when I say that, y'all are supposed to say, yeah, right. <laughs> he's risen. Yes, it's actually a pretty cool tradition. But anyway, so when we look at the message of Jesus, what is Jesus communicating? Then um, I say all that, you know, spend 10 minutes or so to, to set that up to say, um, this is really important, <laughs> right? If God shows up and says something, we probably ought to pay attention to that. Do you think? Uh, um, so um, I, I think a casual reading of Jesus' words in the Gospels, in my opinion, is not, a, is not allowed. Like, why, why would we just pass over something when the sovereign of the universe who became flesh and dwelt among us is is teaching us something. We should pay attention to what he's teaching us. And so as we consider this tonight, um, uh, I, I want us to consider it with, with the belief and the, and the foundation of understanding that this is something that's, that is transformative for us. It literally will change your life. Not, not some, okay, I'm going to sit here and read it, and oh, yeah, man, that, that made me feel good and I'm going to go out and just live however I want, right? Um, Also, just like the claims of Jesus don't allow us to hold that that he was just a good moral teacher, the teachings of Jesus don't allow us to just live however we want, right? It's not an option. And so, in light of that, I think um, if you'll turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, the very first, not necessarily the very first thing that Jesus says, but one of the first things that Jesus says in regard to his message, um, and I think this is just really fascinating. One of, so one of the speakers that's going to come in September uh, in that, on that, that, that uh, exploring the earliest sources for Jesus is a guy named Justin Bass. And uh, I went to seminary with Justin. We got our master's uh, degrees together. And he's, he's, a, he's a buddy of mine. And he, he just finished, uh, he did this exercise. Uh, he, he knows Greek, he teaches Greek, um, uh, and he did this exercise where he went through all the Gospels and all of the sayings of Jesus he translated from Greek into English. It was just a personal exercise of his own. And it was fat. One of the, the things I talked to him about one time, he's like, hey, the fascinating thing that hit me most is if you just, um, he kind of put them one after the other. So they just read like almost like Proverbs, you know. And he, he put them down and he was like, it was fascinating to see the percentage of time, times that Jesus said the word right? This is, I mean, uh, uh, Jesus says this word a lot. <laughs> it's, it's not even like, a, a it's not like he's in passing like, oh yeah, you should do that. Like, this was one of the driving forces of his message. And yet, and in, in, in also in, in, uh, in Matthew 4, 17, what he says is, repent because or for the kingdom of heaven, and, and in other Gospels, it's, it's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are interchangeable. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. Okay, so, so Jesus uh, approaches um, people, and his, his, his message broadly is repentance, because the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. Which begs a couple of questions that we'll get to in a second. But I think that... Um, in one sense, when Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven has come near to you, 
Um, there, is a, there is a spatial sense to this. Like he's saying, he's saying the kingdom of heaven has come near to you because I am the embodiment of the kingdom of God. And I'm standing in front of you. Right? It's literally near to you. Um, as I am the embodiment of it. Which begs the question, what? what what's, the kingdom, <laughs> what's the kingdom of heaven? Right? Um, what is this kingdom of God? What does that mean? Is this, is this something that Jesus is just you know, pulling out of thin air to, to use to describe something? What is he describing when, when he says there is repentance that comes along with this kingdom of heaven that is coming near or that has come near or that, that exists? And so the first thing we're going to look at is that question, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, broadly, it is the range of God's effective will. So if God is the creator of the entire world, the creator of the universe, and he's sovereign over everything, then um, everything in creation is his, right? So it, um, in, in one sense, you have, uh, you have God's effective will, just like I prayed, um, for, you know, over the, uh, just like I prayed over um, uh, God creating the world, and yet um, in his um, permissive will and in his will he's saying no all of all of creation is like this and yet um, I, I broadly desire for everyone that I've created to turn back to me in repentance and come to be citizens of my kingdom and yet that the free will that he um, creates his creatures with allows us the opportunity to rebel and so what's crazy in, in the realm of God's rule is that you can have God's sovereign rule and also our competing kingdom in the midst of that at the same time. So um, as a parent, you desire for your child to grow and mature and to learn how to clean up his room because your desire is, um, your, your primary desire is for the maturation of your child. But what that looks like early on is for the kid to clean up his own room. And yet, how many parents do we have in here? How many times have you gone, how many times have you told your kid to clean his room because you desire for the maturation of your kid to clean his room and to take responsibility for that and also for his room to be clean, right? That's the, the ultimate goal is cleanliness and also the obedience of your child to grow and mature. And yet you walk into your child's room and what? It, yeah, it's chaos. Looks like you know. It looks like Moore, Oklahoma. After a F five blew through it, you know. Anybody from Moore, Oklahoma? We got a couple people on staff that are from Moore. I'm like, why would you grow up in Moore, Oklahoma? This is literally like the bullseye of Tornado Alley. But they do. They live there. They just duck into shelters a couple times a year, or more than that. Anyway, so you have you you have this. Your your primary will is for the child to mature and grow, and also for the room to be clean. And yet, that primary will allows for the room to be messy. You tracking with me? So God's primary goal for us is for us to be sons and daughters of God and for us to grow into mat to maturity to be presented before Christ, mature in Him. But that maturation process, His, His will for us to be like that requires for us to have the free will to, to actually grow up, to make mistakes, to do things that are against His 
sovereign will. Are you tracking with me? So um, the, the thing that allows for evil in the world is this free will that we have to rebel against God. And yet, even in our rebellion against God, God is still the strongest person in the universe. And he can use our rebellion for his purposes to accomplish the end game, um, which we'll, we'll see tonight. So the kingdom of heaven, broadly speaking, is um, everything. Um, the kingdom of heaven is everything that is um, under uh, the rule and reign of God, which is everything. Um, however, um, in, in this kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, there are traitors. There are people who have committed treason against the king. And there's a lot of us that have done that. All right. Um, so aspects of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, there are immaterial aspects. So Psalm 51, 17. Um, somebody want to turn to that real quick and read that for us. Psalm chapter 51, verse 17. And then uh, raise your hand if you want to get that um, for me. Anybody? Somebody? Nobody. There you go, Lauren. Way to step up. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Who wants to get that? All right, sweet. You got it? Amos chapter 5, verses 20 to 24. Somebody want to read that? The book of Amos. Probably, unless you're, well, no, in the journey we're in Isaiah, right? Or we just finished Isaiah. Um, or we're still in it. Amos 5, 20 to 24. Anybody want to read that one? You got it? Amos 5. And then Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Who wants to read that? Okay, sweet. Got it. Lauren, if you'll grab that mic. Um, and then that, there's another mic back here. So Go ahead and read, Lauren. Uh, Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a con- contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Right. So it, it, what we're talking about here is the immaterial. So this is, this is something that is not flesh and bone. And, and what, uh, and, or, uh, you know, s- stuff that's made up of, of atoms <laughs> uh, in, in the, the created world. So by immaterial, I'm, I'm talking about... Um, like Lauren just read, um, the thing that God that pleases God is not necessarily um, sacrifice, like she said, but what? He's talking about a broken and a contrite heart. So there are immaterial aspects of creation, namely, um, and we'll talk about this at length um, tonight, namely uh, yours and, and my uh, ability to choose, our ability to um, have emotion, our ability to have our, our volition, our, uh, our heart. And, and ultimately what God is saying is, the thing that is acceptable to me is a broken and a contrite heart. And obviously that is not material. This is immaterial. This is the spirit, the, if you want to call it a soul of someone. Okay? What else? Or, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, next. For I desire Did you have Hosea? Yes. Nice. Yes. Read. Here we go. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Yeah. So again, all of these are going to be in the same vein. So he's, he's saying, look, you can bring your physical sacrifices to me, but if you're, if you're not repentant in your heart, then it doesn't matter. That's not what I desire. And, and so there's an order to this. There's, a, there's an immaterial transformation that must take place 
in order for the material sacrifice to count for anything, right? So that's, that was Hosea, Amos chapter 5, verses 20 to 24. What does that say? Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. I let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys probably heard that last part, right? But let's, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And so ultimately what God is after is not the religious festivals or the rote memorization of Torah or the, the religious practices or, or the, the songs that people sing on the harps and the lyres and, and all of these things. He is interested in righteousness and justice, <laughs> right? Um, and and, and t- it's, it's fascinating too how those two things, justice and righteousness, are very, very closely related to one another. Um, it's, it's funny, it's, it's like you, you can't have righteousness as it is intended to be without justice. And so um, it's, it's actually really uh, important that we as Christians um, not just g- go for some kind of like uh, righteousness that's divorced from the implementation of justice in the real world. Right? Justice work is central to the gospel. Um, anyway. So yeah, again, reinforcing that uh, the immaterial nature of this is not just a, a religious feast or a, or a song or a sacrifice or anything like that. God is interested in our hearts. He's interested in justice, righteousness, um, uh, brokenness, uh, contriteness. All of these things are, are uh, images of the immaterial self, the soul, the spirit, the heart, right? And then lastly, what was the last one? Micah 6, 6 through 8. Who had that one? You did. Here you go. Thanks. Lord, what kind of offering should we give him? Should we bow before God with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No, people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Yeah, right. Similar, I mean, similar, uh, you know, message of what's going on there is, is like, hey, um, in the order of priority of, of things that exist under the rule of God, the thing that God is most interested in is, uh, in, in order of priority, not to say he's not interested in other things, we'll get to that, but but firstly, and, and of priority, is the immaterial self. What is the condition of your heart? That's what Jesus cares about. Because if he's got your heart, then everything else will fall into place. Right? There, there's, there's a redemptive nature of, of what Jesus is going after. And that's why um, what's central to the kingdom of God is, or, or, or entrance into the kingdom of God, is repentance. For us to say, hey, um, I've been offering sacrifices to God, but my heart has been far f- from Him. 
I'm over here, like immaterially, I sit on the throne of my own kingdom, and I, do, I live life the way I want to live it. I live life under my own desires. I'm driven by my own emotion. I'm driven by my own volition. I'm driven by my own capacity and understanding to be my own God. And, and Yahweh, through, and also, uh, Yahweh in Jesus, who is God, is saying, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, then that has to go. Competing kingdoms. You see what I'm saying? We're ruling over our own kingdom, and God is saying, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, then your kingdom's got to go. But, and what's interesting is, you know, typically you'll give this message in an evangelical church, and, and you, got it, you get a bunch of amen, amen, you know, um, and, and you'll give an altar call, and people come down and play, pray a sinner's prayer, and, and you know, everybody goes to heaven, and it, all, all things are good, right? And, and heaven is, is kind of seen as this, uh, like, ethereal sky palace, right, where, where cupids are flying around with little wings and shooting at each other with love arrows or something, right? And, and it's almost like people, it's funny because pop culture views heaven as this, as, as this kind of uh, weird thing where where you like, I guess, get to reunite with friends and like, it's like this extended, uh, it's ex- this extended uh, party in the clouds with your friends. Um, and, and then some people um, view heaven as like this ongoing like praise and worship song where night and day and all day long you sing uh, this, this song from the 90s. I could sing of your love for ever. And I'm like, dude, if that's heaven, like somebody shoot me in the face. You know what I'm saying? After about three stanzas of that song, I'm like, I don't want to listen to that song anymore. Um, and, and in the youth group, we would sing it for like 30 minutes. And you see people are like falling asleep. Some people are leaving, you know, and it's like, come on, let's sing forever, you know. Um, and it's like, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. Because it's not just this immaterial transformation of our hearts. There are also material aspects to the kingdom of God. Now, what you had in the uh, early 20th century, um, late, late 19th century, early 20th century, you had the rise of uh, Christian liberalism. Okay, under guys like Frederick Schliermacher, which I know y'all are like, I don't know who that is, or most of you probably don't. But, but basically what you had was, um, you had this uh, rise of liberalism, and, and in the rise of liberalism, you also had a, an emphasis on, on, uh, uh, on social justice, which is great. Social justice is a good thing. But, but people, what started to happen is that people would say, hey, the kingdom of God actually is not about repentance. It's not about the immaterial transformation of the human heart. It's actually about, um, you know, uh, doing good things in the world. So I go feed my, the homeless or I help my neighbor or um, I uh, am doing some kind of good in the world and that's the kingdom of heaven. And what ended up happening from that, and this happened in the, in the 50s and 60s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, really, really post-World War II, because there was this kind of like idea of this utopian society, and World War II, like, well, really both world wars, but World War II especially like crushed that idea. Like, oh, we can, through technology and through all these things, we can make ourselves to live in this perfect society, and then Hitler came into power and everybody killed themselves, and it was kind of like, no, we can't, you know? Um, and so what ended up happening was with this push of liberalism, evangelicalism 
um, instead of engaging the culture, um, kind of backed away and entrenched, we entrenched ourselves to say, no, the most important thing that we have to preserve is just the message of repentance. And so we entrenched ourselves, and it became, it became really like, hey, um, the, all of the, act, the, the actual like, physical activity that you're doing in the world, because liberalism is associated with that, we're not going to do that. We're going to retreat from that, and we're going to entrench ourselves to say that the most important thing is the immaterial self and this spiritualized salvation, where the only thing that matters is the forgiveness of sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. It's called evangelical Gnosticism. Gnosticism was an early, toward the end of the first century and well into the second century, early Christian heresy that divorced, um, it, it divorced the, the, the material from the immaterial. And in, and in Gnosticism, the only thing that was truly, purely spiritual was the immaterial self, the soul, the spirit. The Gnostics viewed all of the material world as bad and we don't interact with it and it's evil and it's whatever. It's going to die. It's going to burn. And when it burns, all you'll be left with is this pure spirit. right? And this weird form of evangelical Gnosticism began to form in the middle of the last century. And we still feel the effects of it today. I mean, if you ask somebody, what is salvation? They will typically tell you, the forgiveness of sin so that somebody can go to heaven when they die, right? And yet here you have Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven in, 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 in such a way, and we'll see again tonight, that, that there's not just the immaterial, which there is for sure, and it's priority, but there's also a physical element to it. There's a material element to the kingdom of God. See Psalm chapter uh, 24, 24, 24, verse 1. Right? The earth is whose? The earth is the Lord's, and everything that's in it is God's. Right? And then Psalm 96. Let me read this. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all of the earth. What? All the earth? <laughs> Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all people. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and glory are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that's in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his truth. The psalmist is saying, I mean, the, the, I don't know how you get around this, the picture of what he's saying is that all of creation is shouting praise to God. Not just the immaterial self of human beings who have been incorporated into the kingdom of God as sons and daughters, but the fields, and the seas, and the trees, and the grass, 
Like when Jesus says, if you're silent, then what? If you don't cry out, then who will? The rocks. If you don't cry out, the rocks will cry out my name. I think he, I've, you know, I mean, I, you can look at that figuratively all you want. I think he, he might be serious. <laughs> I think he might be like, hey, if you guys don't worship me, all my creation will. Are you tracking with me? Um, this fits squarely into the idea of that, that we see in, in the, the, at, at the end of Revelation. I don't know how many of you all have studied and looked at the book of Revelation, but at the end of Revelation, what do you have? You have a new heaven and a new earth. The old things have passed away, but, but everything is new. And so it's not that the earth burns, burns up and then ceases to exist. No, there, there's a renewal, there's a restoration of the material world. The, the, so in other words, I like to tell people, I'm like, hey, heaven is not going to be this ethereal sky palace where we, where we fly around and love one another and it's this constant praise and worship service where we're shooting each other with Cupid arrows. You know, that, that's, that's not heaven. Um, heaven is this world restored, not broken. The resurrection of the dead is not a resurrection of the spiritual immaterial. The resurrection of the dead is a physical resurrection in a physical world to interact with one another and God himself in physical ways, right? We are physical beings that are created to live in a physical world, and that physical world was created and was called good before the fall, right? So when Jesus comes and is talking about his creation, he's not talking about this evangelical Gnosticism where it's immaterial only. He is interacting with all of his creation. When he's working and he calms the sea, the sea is listening to him because it recognizes his voice. It's paying attention. When when he's interacting with the bread and he multiplies the bread, the bread is paying attention to him. Because it recognizes the, its, its creator. When he, when he turns water into wine, the elements are listening to him because they recognize the voice of their creator. Right? So, so the kingdom of God is both immaterial, which, which includes our volition, our will, our soul, our spirit, the way that we interact with one another, our, our ability to reason, but it also includes the material world. Before I, before I move on, I know... My world, sorry. Oh, slideshow help. I don't want slideshow help. I want you to go back. There you go. So before I move on, I know some of you may have like heard this for the first time tonight. What, any questions, any concerns, anybody like, eh, I don't think you're right. Um, uh, any questions before we move on? Don't be shy. What is it? Yeah, where he says the kingdom of you. You'll say you'll look for it, and you know, and say here it is, and there it is, and it's within your midst. Yeah. So um, I think I think, and we'll, we were going to uh, talk about that in a second, Tim. Thanks. <clears throat> um, but I think when what Jesus is saying in in uh, when he's saying that it's among you, one is I think he's probably there's a double reference there. I think in some sense he's also talking about himself. It's in your midst, um, like I am among you. But then there's all, I think he's talking about the immaterial kingdom. I mean, I think he's talking about um, 
the priority of the immaterial that, that plays itself out materially. So we can't, in other words, we can't like, like I can't look at that chair and be like, there's the kingdom of God. Separate from the immaterial working itself out in, in the material world. Do I think there's going to be chairs in heaven? Probably, right? I mean, I hope so. I need a place to sit. You know what I'm saying? Um, but, uh, uh, but the priority of the kingdom of heaven is, is immaterial. It's just that we can't divorce the immaterial from the material um, because then the immaterial has no way of working itself out. For us to do anything at all we, requires a physical body. Have you ever tried to do anything without your physical body? Have you, ever tried to, have you ever tried to think without your, without your brain? Have you ever tried to look without your eyes? Have you ever tried to touch and feel without your hands? Have you ever tried to eat without your mouth? Are you, tra- you tracking with me? Like, and so I think what Jesus is saying in Luke 17 is, is he, he's talking about priority of the kingdom. So we can't just, like we can't look at a track of land and be like, oh, there's the kingdom of God. Um, because the kingdom of God... Um, is working itself out immaterial in a physical world. So I think ultimately we will be able to look at the earth and say there is the kingdom of God because God will literally be reigning over it among subjects who, are, who have uh, voluntarily um, placed themselves under his rule and reign. Um, does that quasi help at least? Um, it's a good question. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think that, um, generally speaking, the kingdom of God is already here. It's not, like, it's not like Jesus brought the kingdom of God where it did not already exist. Um, he, just, he, just be, he just offered it in a new kind of way. So, and that's, that's what Tim's uh, referring to the notes, which I'll go ahead and put up there because we're going to talk about it anyway. So, in some sense, the kingdom is already here because God has already created and God is always God. So it's like, hey, did, did creation go away and did the creator go away? No, neither of those things happened. The creator still exists and he still is working things out in history according to his will. So in that sense, broadly speaking, the kingdom of God is already here. And so when Jesus hits the scene, um, it's almost like this. Um, uh, this is, I think, a great, probably the best imagery that I've ever heard of anybody explaining this is that you have... Um, I don't know if y'all can see, um, well, maybe I can stand like right here, but you guys know what I'm saying, like I'm here, but you can see my shadow on the ground, right, or you can see your own shadow. So there's a shadow of, um, uh, of, of what's happening and the way things are playing themselves out that, that are uh, just like we covered in the claims of Jesus. He says, hey, you search the scriptures thinking you're going to find life, but it's the scriptures that are testifying about who? About me. You believe Moses, but I'm telling you, Moses wrote about me. So um, what's happening is the, ki- the kingdom of God already exists, but the kingdom of God in its existence prior to Christ is just pointing to the reality of Christ. So it's a shadow. The sacrificial system is a shadow. The, the ceremonial and purity laws of the Old Testament are a shadow. right? And, and the shadow goes away when the real thing shows up. Right? So you might, if I'm around the corner and I'm casting a, sh- a long shadow, y'all might be like, there. there's a shadow, right? You can't see me because I'm on the other side of the wall, but the light is in such a way that you can see the long shadow and you're like, there's a shadow. But then 
when I actually like, or, or anybody, it's not me, anybody, walks into the room, then you cease to look at the shadow because the person who's been casting the shadow is actually in the room. You tracking with me? This is the way it is with Christ, which is why his claims were so significant in that time and place because he's saying, um, he's saying my disciples don't need to fast while I'm here, right? And, and he goes about totally ignoring the ceremonial and the purity laws of the Old Testament. Why? Because they don't apply to him. They don't know, and, and if you're in Christ, they don't apply to you either. They don't apply to anybody anymore. Christ is the end of the law. See Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Uh, Matthew 5, 17. Uh, I don't, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them because they're about me. And so um, the, kingdom of, the kingdom of heaven is already exists, just, just not in the special kind of way that, that occurs when the reality of Christ sets in and he offers the kingdom to all the nations. See the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Right? That, that the, the effective will of God through Christ begins to permeate the whole world, including you and I sitting here tonight in 2015. Right? Does that make sense? So it is already here because Jesus says... Um, Repent, because the kingdom of God has, has come near to you. The kingdom of heaven is, is, has come near to you. But it's not yet completed because there are still traitors in his kingdom, right? There are still people who actively are working against his rule and his reign. See all the stuff I prayed for before and also see all of the junk in your life that is rebellion against God. And also see all the stuff in my life that is rebellion against God. Right? We still live in competing kingdoms. And the process of discipleship, which we'll talk about at length in two weeks, is the process of the Holy Spirit um, who has already made us new, working out His kingdom, the kingdom of God in our own lives, that as that is cultivated and grown, our kingdom gets smaller and smaller and smaller until um, ultimately it disappears. Right? And we are literally, truly in the presence of God. Um, like unbroken by sin, in, in any way. So there's a couple of passages I think are really important for this. One of my favorite is Romans 8. So let's, let's turn to Romans 8, and then um, uh, Tim, do you mind reading 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28? And then somebody else uh, want to read Revelation 21? Anybody? Revelation 21, verse 5. You will? Okay, thanks. Um, where'd the mics go? There you go. You can uh, give it to Tim here, and then the other one. Okay, sweet. So let's look at Romans chapter 8 first. And that's me, so I've got to turn there. <clears throat> All right. I've always, I've always um, thought this is really interesting in Romans 8. So we're going to start in verse 20 through 23. He says this, um, well, and I'll start in verse 18 because that's kind of the section. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, which is crazy. Um, the glory is not revealed out of, outside of us. The glory is revealed in us. What does that mean? <laughs> um, but then he says, and this is the whole immaterial portion, I was, or I'm sorry, the material portion that I was getting at um, before, verse 19 the creation itself waits 
an eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Right? He's, he's talking about the salvation of creation. He's talking about salvation of the trees and the grass and the land and the water. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await, eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Right? Physical resurrection. So Paul here in this letter to the Romans is not talking about um, a redemption that is praying a sinner's prayer and going to, going to some sky palace heaven when you die. No, he's talking about the redemption and restoration of all of creation. A holistic, um, immaterial, um, symbiotic relationship with the material that is, is wholly restored and brought under subjection to Christ. Right? So the kingdom of God is both immaterial and material. It is already here, but not yet completed. Um, again, 1 Corinthians 15. Tim, go ahead and read that for us. 20 to 28. Use the mic, too, if you don't mind. That's all right. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then as, at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he, he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has he is accepted who puts all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to, subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah good, good, good. So, I know there's a lot of, sub, he's using the word sub, subjected a lot in there. Um, but basically, um, and what I, what I wanted to point out in that passage is, you have a, you have a physical resurrection, and you have not just a physical resurrection, Christ being the first of many physically resurrected, but that Christ is reigning and ruling and subjecting all other um, treasonous authorities and powers who are traitors to his reign, and he will suppress them and judge them. And then once he's done all, once all these things have been placed like literally placed under his feet, um, in both metaphorically and also literally, in a literal sense, authority, all authority is his, 
then he's offering um, this, this world back to his Father because Christ is the one who has been sent to redeem something that's broken. Right? And then once Christ is, uh, presents this back to his Father, God is all in all. There is, so that literally, Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, go ahead and read it, whoever volunteered for that, go ahead. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Yeah. So Christ um, literally uh, gives the, the kingdom of God, all of creation, back to the Father and says, I'm done. I have made all things new. Right? There's, and uh, what's, what's cool about Revelation 21, too, in, in that passage, one of the most beautiful passages um, in all of Scripture. Um, in fact, I mean, it's kind of sad if I just say that and don't read it. <clears throat> right? It says, uh, 21, starting in verse 1, that, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And then he who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Right? Um, this is the culmination of the kingdom of God. And so while there are competing kingdoms, the kingdom of God sovereignly working and also the traitorous kingdoms of, of people who are trying to find life apart from God, um, he is still moving ultimately where Christ will defeat all and suppress all and, def- and judge all other competing authorities so that everything is and God is all in all. It's really important as we talk about this to understand this, this phrase. It's called meta-narrative. Meta-narrative is basically a word that describes you have a story, but then that story fits into a broader general story that is driving the more specific story. Do you understand what I'm saying? We, you can call it context. You can call it um, backstory. You can call it, which really more than backstory because it's the whole story. So, so a lot of times when we tell a story, we just tell like a very specific story and leave out the, the, the broader whole story that the specific story fits into. And so when we talk about meta-narrative, I'm talking about the whole story. You, you guys understand what I'm saying? So in meta-narrative, you typically answer four questions about any meta-narrative. One is creation. What, what happened to creation? Um, who are we? Why are we here? Who is God? Who, who has created? And, and what's interesting is if you look at Genesis 1.28, God, God creates man and woman and says, that's good. And then he tells them, uh, he gives them a command. You guys know what the command is? Genesis 1.28, God created man and, and woman in his image. He created them male and female. and He created them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, right? I mean, you guys are fulfilling the great, the, that first commission, right? Um, you know, uh, uh, my wife is, and I are fulfilling that commission. Anybody with 
children is fulfilling that, that first commission, be, be fruitful and multiply. And then he says, fill the earth and what? Rule over it. Um, in theological circles, people call this the first commission. Right? We have the great commission in Matthew 28, but really, and, and, and I think some, some guys have a good point, that really the commission in Matthew 28 is, is, is simply a, uh, the, the means by which we fulfill the first commission, right? which is we, we exist on this earth, physically exist on this earth as God's under rulers. We are uh, designed, created, specifically placed here to rule over this world for Him. That's the first thing He told us to do. This is before the fall. This is before anything. He says, um, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and rule over it in my stead. Which is one of the reasons, I think, that why we, we hold a special place in creation because we are the only part of creation that is specifically made in the image of God. Which is why abortion is such a horrific thing. We are destroying the image of God. Right? Um, we, we are... Um, that's, why, that's why war is such a horrific thing. It's why disease is such a horrific thing. Right? Th- these things are not like naturalistic, oh, they don't matter, whatever, we'll, we'll just continue to survive as a species. No, these things are horrific, it's tragic. When somebody feels a gut-level response of, that's not right, it's because it's not right. It's horrific. It's a distortion of the image of God. And, and, and it's a distortion of what we were created to, to be and to do. To, to live on this earth as, as God's under-rulers, to, to fellowship with Him, to commune with Him, to rule over the earth in his, in, in, as His representatives. And yet, a part of that broad meta-narrative is that we rebelled. Um, we rebelled um, partly because there were beings prior to us who had significant power who also rebelled against God. And these beings tempted us in the garden to also rebel. And the, and the temptation was what? It's, it's really two forms. Did God really say? So it casts doubt on the word of God. And secondly, you can be your own God. That's, that's the temptation. Is, hey, I know, I know there's this kingdom and this ruler and this sovereign who created you for a specific purpose to commune with him, to rule over the world that he created and that he placed you in. And yet, um, we took the bait. We looked at ourselves and the desire, the distorted desire within us was to be our own God. And we became traitors to the king. Right? This is, and, and then all of the, the, I mean, this really is like creation, I love you. I placed you here. I want you to rule over the world with me, for me. And, and then we said, nah, no, you said that, but we don't really believe that you're really serious. And so we're going to try to do this on our own, apart from you. And the rest of human history is this tragic outworking of what it looks like for human beings to try to find life apart from God. Well, God said, um, you're... 
I want you to I want you to clean your room, <laughs> and, I, and I, I want you to mature to the point where you can clean your room. And yet, um, uh, uh, giving us that free will to do so um, allowed us to to let our room be messy, right? And so he said, in order to train you for this and empower you to do this, I'm going to send my son into your room to show you how to do this. And so Christ Jesus. This man that we've been studying enters into our reality and it physically is a human with us. God, the, he's the God-man. And, and through the redemption of Christ, he is now um, empowering us through the work of the Holy Spirit to um, not only uh, be forgiven of our treason and reinstated as sons of God, but he's also empowering us to act like sons of God, to be reinstated to our original commission that is, hey, I'm an, I am a representative of my king. I'm a ruler of this earth that God has placed me on. As his representative, it's my job not only to accurately represent the king, but also to inform all of the other traitors that they might be in a dominant position right now, but really, this is God's place. Um, and, and to call them to repentance of their treason to be reinstated as sons and daughters of God so that, all the stuff we've read so far, that there will be a restoration. There will no longer be a time where there are wars or disease or famine or murder or or um, human trafficking, or oppression, or injustice. All of these things that we look at on the news every single night and and we're disgusted at, it's all going to go away. Because Jesus is working to make all things new. Right? And so we as his agents, and so if if you're going to talk about Jesus at all, you need to understand that meta-narrative that, that even the trees are going to cry out, right? God cares about the trees. He cares about the rocks. He cares about his creation. Um, and, and he cares about us being proper stewards of that creation, lording over that creation in his, and accurately representing him as stewards of it. And so it matters. Um, it, it, it matters the, the way that you, the way that you, do your job matters. The way that you interact with people matters. Like when you're making something or when you're calling somebody to do something, um, uh, do it all to the glory of God because it matters. Your work is sacred to God. Right? And so understanding this, understanding this meta-narrative, this broad story, makes a lot more sense when Jesus comes onto the scene and says the whole story, all of it, um, I am the central chapter. I am the hinge on which all of history turns. So, um, this is... the story of us. Right? Okay, let's look at a couple of things. Um, I'm going to pause here real quick. And we've got 15 minutes and we still have a lot to cover. <laughs> I'm, uh, I need to speed up or just not talk as much about certain things. Um, but... Uh, does anybody have any questions before I move on? 
Okay. So there's a couple of things I want to cover, and then we'll be done. One is the Sermon on the Mount, right? Um, Jesus, you guys know this, right? Matthew chapter Matthew chapters uh, five, six, and seven. This is primarily this is the largest chunk of unbroken teaching that we have in the Gospels, and it's it's a uh, uh, the sermon that Jesus gives on the mountainside um, uh, in, in Galilee, he's pro- more than likely is by the Sea of Galilee when he gives this. Um, but, he, but he teaches. And he says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, and, uh, six times in Matthew chapter 5, he says these words or a variation of them. You have heard that it was said, whatever, don't commit adultery, don't murder, um, and four other things. right? <laughs> and, and then he says, but I tell you this. Right? Are you guys familiar with this? Um, so you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. And, and in um, that, a lot of times people are like, what's he doing there? Like, is he contradicting the law? I mean, he just said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And yet he seems to be, he seems to be saying, hey, you heard that it was said this, but I tell you this. And really, I think there's a, there's a distinction that we want to make here when we're interpreting what Jesus is after. Because he did, he, he's, he's saying something um, in... Uh, He's talking about the law where he says, hey, you've heard it said, don't murder, right? Um, but, but because of, um, if you remember from background context, there was, um, from the time of Ezra all the way down that intertestamental period, there was the formulation of what we call the oral tradition. And this is where rabbis would show up on the scene and they would, they would begin to teach Torah in such a way that, hey, it, this says this, my interpretation of this is this. So, um, so a rabbi would say, the law says to keep the Sabbath. My interpretation of that is you don't walk past three miles, you don't pick up, you don't do any work on the Sabbath, you don't da 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 Do you see what I'm saying? And so these rabbis were spelling out their interpretation of what the law meant. And so um, that, that oral tradition of the rabbis, um, what was interesting is during that 400-year period, what, what ended up happening so that when Jesus hit the scene, this was very much a reality, is that the oral tradition had been placed on the same level of authority as the actual law. So when Jesus is interacting with people um, in the first century, he's not just dealing with Torah he's dealing, or, or the law, he's dealing with their oral traditions. Does that make sense? Um, are you all tracking with me? Because that's really important. That's why what, what he's doing is less about talking against the law Really what he's doing is he's placing the law back in its original position of what it was always supposed to be. You understand? He's acting as a, he's acting as a, as a purist, as, as someone who's, who's trying to, um, uh, uh, I want to say reconcile, that's not the right word. Uh, he's trying to reform. Reform is the right word. He's trying to do away with a, a skewed view of the law and place the law back in where it, it, it always belonged, which We've already covered uh, those Old Testament passages where the Lord says, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your festival. I don't want, I don't want your song. What does God want? God wants righteousness and justice and a broken and a contrite heart and, and, and to love mercy and to walk humbly with, with, with your God. That's what God's after. And that's why Jesus says, you have heard it said, don't commit murder. But I'm telling you, if you're angry at your brother in your heart, You've committed murder already. You're already guilty of this. That's why Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you're already guilty of it. 
He's reforming the oral tradition and placing the law back where it belongs. Ultimately, the central issue of the Sermon on the Mount is the condition of the heart. That's what Jesus is after. He's not simply concerned with what are you doing. He's asking the deeper question, why are you doing what you're doing? Jesus does not care primarily, this is going to shock you, Jesus primarily does not care how you live your life. That is not what he's after. So many of us in evangelicalism today, and and even broadly in Christianity, have, have succumbed to this idea of moral formation. Of just believing that if we just do the right things and show up and sit and and pay our tithe and read our Bible and pray our prayer, then it's great without paying any attention to the condition of your heart, the condition of the motivations of why are you doing what you're doing, right? So, So somebody can be doing all the right things and be doing them for all the wrong reasons and they're breaking the law while they're keeping it, right? And that's why Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I'm not primarily concerned with how you live your life. That's never been my concern, primarily. My concern has always been, what do you love? What motivates you? Where are your affections? Where is righteousness? Why is that his primary concern? Because if he gets that, he gets everything else thrown in. And this is why James says that um, the, the natural outworking of true faith is that it will work itself out in the way that you live your life. But it's a byproduct. The way you live your life is a byproduct of an, of an inward transformation that is by the work of the Spirit. So when, you, so when you're asking, well, well, if the central issue of the Sermon on the Mount is the condition of the heart, then what is the heart? Right? Because a lot of times... Um, I mean, well, let me just ask you guys. If I was to walk into a, into a grocery store, I don't know, that's the first image that came in my mind. Do we need anything from the store, Margaret? I don't know why that just hit me. Like, oh, maybe it's because every time we drive home, Nate, our two-year-old's like, oh, it's a store, you know. But let's say we, I walk into a store and I start interviewing people, right? Um, and I ask them, hey, what is the, what is, if you had to define the, the heart, um, and I'm not talking about the beating heart, but if, if you had to define heart, in, in the human condition, how would you define it? What do you think the common answers would be? Just popcorn it. What do you think? Okay, yeah. Feelings, emotions. I would say that's probably would be the majority answer. Right? Um, I mean, Valentine's Day rolls around and you get a balloon and it's shaped like what? Seriously? Valentine's rolls around. You guys know Valentine's? Oh, heart. Yeah, good. There you go. Good. So, so balloon. We have we have balloons shaped like hearts. Why? Because hearts in our society, they. they um, I mean, and even majority, I would say probably nine, at least ninety percent of the people would would by default go to. It's the way that I feel. My heart is how I feel. Right, and that, and I would just tell you, like unequivocally, that is not your heart. In fact, did you know in 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 Hebrew scriptures? Um, emotion, do you know the, the body part that they associated with emotion was not heart? Do you know what it was? Huh? Yeah, it's your gut. That's where your emotions are, deep down in your gut. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, 
And, and that's for, for Hebrews, like, um, I mean, truly, it's like, if, if we were to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, then, and, and the way that we view it is we would, we would say, love the Lord your God with all of your guts, right? Um, all of the way that you feel. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. The heart is the will or the spirit. The, the heart, um, the heart is, is, the, is the centrality of volition, uh, the human condition to choose, our ability to, to bring into actuality the choices that exist um, in our capacity to interact with creation. It's the core of who we are. Um, life must be organized by the will if it is to be organized at all. It can only be pulled together from the inside. That is the function of the will or the heart to organize our life as a whole and indeed to organize it around God. To, to make choices as if God is actually the king. Even if we don't feel like it. A great part of the disaster of contemporary life lies in the fact that it is organized around feelings. People nearly always act on their feelings and think it only right. The will is then left at the mercy of circumstances that evoke feelings. So, so what we have is people who are, who are shotgunning life by just the way that they feel. I feel like this, so I'm going to do this. And ultimately, the God that sits on the throne of their life is the way that they feel. And, and I'm just telling you, the natural outworking of that is literally lunacy. It's lunatic. It's, it's lunatic. We have the capacity as human beings to make choices. And those choices need to be made based on, on, on uh, moral concreteness, on ethical concreteness, on the way that we function and, and exist as a society, so that, so that all the time, and this happens for all of us, our lives are organized, are organized around things that we don't want to do. Right? There's all kinds of things. It's like, man, I don't feel like doing this, but I need to do it. Right? And ultimately, what ends up happening, this is a great imagery of spiritual formation or discipleship, is that we, we exist in ruts. We act in certain ways that over time, like if you've seen a, a dirt road where vehicles run over the same track over and over and over, and that track goes deeper and deeper and deeper until eventually you, can't, you kind of like can't drive on anything but that. Your tires are stuck in it, Right? And, and what I'm saying is, for a lot of us, um, our emotions are those tire tracks, those ruts that we've got ourselves into. And what Jesus is after is he's saying, no, there's another way. There's the way of the Spirit, where the Spirit is going to, to quicken you to reveal what's true, so that even if you don't feel like that this is true, it actually is true. There's a concrete truth out there that exists um, directly tied to the person of Jesus because he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. You can't get to the Father except through me, through my rut, right? And so um, it is a, a huge part of following the way of Christ is to, um, even when we don't feel like it, to train ourselves um, in the truth, which involves the disciplines, Bible study, not, not just as a, oh yeah, I did my devotion today, but as a way of saturating your mind uh, and then ultimately your heart, your, it's informing the choices that you're making. That's your heart. Prayer, meditation, silence, 
slowing. What you're doing is you're saying, I've been listening to the world and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to retrain myself in the power of the Spirit to, to, to get ruts going over here this way toward the truth. I'm going to practice these things every day so that ultimately what happens is it, that becomes um, the air that I breathe. It becomes weird if you get out of that rut. And what you start to see is you start to see someone who lives in the world, but they're not of it. They, they walk in the truth. They walk in the way. And they're, they're, they look radically different. Not, not just by the things that they do, but by their affections, the things that they see beauty in, the worship that they give. The, um, and ultimately, you know, you know why they look different? Because they have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Right? These are the things that Jesus is, is discipling us in. He's wanting us to, to form our ruts in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the way that we feel. So the message of the kingdom is simply this. It is the transformation of the heart resulting in a changed life. So again, you have immaterial first. The Holy Spirit through the presence, the, the presence of Jesus in the Holy Spirit literally is in the believer so that that, that person is trans, their affections are transformed. So, so you may, and again, I need, I need to talk about these two-tier desires. I got like three minutes. I got these two-tier tier desires. But you have, because uh, uh, a lot of times people are like, man, I really want to sin. I want to go my own way. I want to be the throne of, I want to sit on the throne of my own life. All of us have these every day, right? I want to do it this way. Even though I know God's calling me to do it this way, I want to do it this way. We all have those things, right? What I'm saying is, is that the, the thing that Jesus is after, and, and really how you tell the presence of the Spirit in somebody's life, is they have these deeper desires. You have tears of desires. I want to be my own king, but I want to not want to. Does that make sense? I want to lash out in anger, but there's a deeper part of me that knows that that's not right, and so there's a deeper part of me that wants to not lash out in anger even though I want to. And in some deeply entrenched areas of our lives where we've been our own God for a really long time, that tear can go pretty deep. I want to do this and I really want to, <laughs> right? But, but I know that life is not there. And there's a deeper part of me that even though I want to and want to want to, there's a part of me that, that, that wants to not want to want to. All right? I know that, like, you may have to go back and listen to that a couple of times, but I promise you, if you wait long enough and get it, it makes sense, okay? <laughs> um, so that is the transformation of art. It's the transformation of your volition and your will to actually, um, of your own free will, follow in the way, right? That's what God's after. Hey, guys, he doesn't primarily care that you get up and discipline yourself to do all these things if it's not training your heart and, and, and changing your affections um, to see the beauty of Christ. We don't need to become Christian legalists. God help us. The, the message of the kingdom is the transformation of the heart resulting in a change of life to be the right type of person. And that right type of person will naturally ex, um, expand the realm of God's effective rule on the earth. So that Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer, which I'll call the Disciples' Prayer, right? Because he's teaching his disciples to pray. He says, Our Father 
who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then what does he pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be what? Be done on earth. Right? This is, this is the message of Jesus. Is that I'm bringing the kingdom of God to you so that you can walk in it. I'm bringing the kingdom of God to you so that the will of my Father, you, you guys are a bunch of traitors. And I'm bringing you back into become not traitors, but sons and daughters. And in that, um, for, so that my effective rule can permeate all of the earth. I was going to cover two kingdom parables, but I don't have time to. I can summarize them by saying, um, in both parables, um, people gave up um, an enormous amount to gain something that was far surpassed what they gave up um, to get it. Um, Jesus on cost and value, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So there, there's this aspect of, and again, I'm getting back to the beginning. If you want the kingdom of God to come, then your kingdom has to go. <laughs> That's the prerequisite of existence in the kingdom of God. But then Jesus also says, look, this is not about what you have to give up. It's what you gain when you actually put yourself into my hands. Right? You gain your life. You preserve your soul. You, you, you're placing a high value on your soul when, when you allow the Spirit to transform you, you don't grieve the Spirit. You don't quench the Spirit. You allow the Spirit to, to form ruts in your life that train you to walk in the way. And so one of my mentors who's mentored me in, over the last three years says this. He says, I think what Jesus is saying is, if you're going to follow me, life on your terms is over. You don't get to live like you want to live anymore. Right? You cannot follow Jesus and live the way that you want to live at the same time. However, over time, spiritual transformation is Jesus training you in His way so that actually your affections do change. You really do. Your, your tastes change. You don't, your, your desire for sin is diminished. Your, your desire for the beauty of Christ and the way of God is, is enhanced. It, it literally becomes the air that you breathe. So that Jesus, I think, and, and this is why, this is the irony of all of this, is that as you give up your kingdom, the thing that you find is that life is, is uh, you become lighter. Um, freedom is found in Christ. So that, I think when he says this, I think he's deeply, deeply right. But he says, come to me, everybody who's weary and burdened, and I'll give you, not, you got to give all this stuff up, right? He says, come to me and I will give you rest. You cannot find rest apart from me because it does not exist. Take my yoke on you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. There is this aspect of, of walking literally in Christ, in the power of the Spirit. And as we do, um, we more and more, the kingdom of God is unfolding um, literally right in front of our eyes. We gain a deeper appreciation for the beauty of Christ and a diminished attraction to the world. Um, and, and ultimately, that's what Jesus is after. That was his message, is, is that 
um, I want to make you into sons and daughters, like you were always supposed to be, to restore you to be my under-rulers, to be my representatives, to walk in communion with me, um, to walk in the power of the Spirit, to, to participate with me in what I am doing to um, redeem and restore all of creation. And it's a high calling, it's a high honor, um, and, and ultimately, it's, I mean, in all of our lives who know Christ in the power of the Spirit, um, it is the great miracle of our lives that God could take tra- traitors, people who have actively rebelled against His rule and His reign in our lives and make us sons and daughters of God, right? Um, it's amazing. So sorry I had to fly through that, and I'm sorry we're late. Um, yeah, I wish I had a whole other session to go on this, but we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up in a couple of weeks. Next week, we're going to talk through um, uh, the passion, Jesus' betrayal, trial, and crucifixion. It'll be a, it'll be a, a, a good night, um, and then we'll close out in a couple of weeks with the resurrection and the commission.